Hi, and welcome to the House Hack Podcast. An exploration of modern work and how young professionals and businesses can work together in pursuit of the careers of tomorrow. Ryan and Charlie here. We're so glad you could join us. Let's get into it. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the House Hack Podcast. Excited to have you listening in today. We're joined by Alex Vega today, who is the founder of The Ronin an agency which designs businesses, brands, products, and experiences with Gen Z in mind. Alex focuses on building a world where young people focus on purpose over passion and are empowered to make a meaningful difference in the causes that they care about the most. You can find him on theronin.com and we're super excited to be chatting today. Alex, how are you? I'm good. Quite an intro. I forgot that that was the intro and I was like, oh, wow, I set myself up to have to somehow back that up that's funny <laughs> <laughs> no it's uh it's all good and i think that's what we have to do right we have to compartmentalize compact the descriptions of ourselves whenever we, we create those intros but we'd love to just start off with in your own words kind of how do you help businesses connect with gen z what's the core of that in terms of what you do our business is a culmination of us trying to solve the problem but for like ultimately like failing every single time and like, you know, we thought that, okay, maybe we just help young people first. Like, let's do that. That didn't work. We started like, okay, like, let's see if we can work with like small businesses. And I was like, that didn't work. And so like for us, like the way that we, we say that we're helping Gen Z, it's more indirect, right? Like as much as we are helping young people, like just helping, you know, young business owners, when we can talk to them, such as yourself, just other people like that, we're trying to change the world that Gen Z lives in. When we're playing at a bigger game, it's when you look at it, it cause it's a, it's a lot to, uh, to unpack, right? There is a lot that this world has failed this generation, right? Like we have so much access to things, but then because we have so much access to things, you just realize how fucked up the world is, right? And that's mm. the struggle about being Gen Z is that the world is so fucked up, but you feel powerless because you're just one person. And like, even though we have a voice, it's like, how far does that go? Right. Especially here in the States, you're seeing all these, these crazy ass, like just stories pop up. Like, it seems like every single day, a, a, a young African-American is just shot by the police. Like I just got, uh, I was on Instagram this morning and there was another one that just happened. And it's just like, at what point we're so desensitized to this reality. We just, eventually you feel powerless, emotionally, just some drained and just in general, cause like, what can you do? And when you start looking at it, it's just like, who's responsible for this? Is it really us creating a business and answering to that? Or is it, is there a business that's out there that can change the world around them? And so for us, when it comes to companies explicitly, what we do is that we go into a company and the biggest question that we have them, we ask them this question first. We're saying, what is the role that you play in the human experience? And it's like, a lot of times you'd be surprised to hear how transactional their relate, like their relationship and their responses. Like, well, we're, we're a tech company. Like, what, what do you mean? I'm just like, what do you mean? What do you mean? It's just like, if you're a company and you are employing people and you have consumers, what do you answer that question? What well, is the role that your business plays in the human experience? And what we ultimately end up finding within companies is that we try to supersede the, the normal transactional mindset that people have when it comes to the role of business in the human experience, right? When you're looking at companies like Apple, like how many people at one point wanted to work for Apple? A lot of people, right? But is it really because of their products or is it because of the way that they branded themselves, the way that they made themselves involved within our human experience? So for companies, big or small, whether you're a startup, whether you're a venture-backed, or whether you're an enterprise, the way that we are helping Gen Z is literally changing the companies that work within this world. Because if we can change the companies, then we actually have a shot at changing the world around Gen Z at scale. Because if we try to hold it within ourselves, 
we are not scalable. I don't want to employ a hundred thousand people. And even that's not the world. But if I want to change the world, I need to change the functioning system that we operate in, which is capitalism. So I have to re have companies relook at the role that businesses play in the human experience, because I can't tear down capitalism, but I can definitely change the way capitalism operates. Yeah, 100%. And I love that. And I think the theme that comes back for me in terms of working within a social enterprise environment, within a charity environment, ultimately comes back to you have to have capital to have influence. And you have to be able to make that change that you want. And ultimately, that's the bottom line. That's the kind of end of it. But we'd love to to track back a little bit and think, what was the original vision? You know, it's like standard question in these kind of interview parts of the podcast. What was the original vision, that starting spark behind starting the Ronin? And maybe has that changed over time? Oh yeah, no, it's changed a lot. I don't know if you guys are familiar with like content creator influencers, like people who are like freelance videographers, mm -hmm. but also like are influencers as well. I remember watching, a, if you don't know, if you know who this is, uh, Sam Colder. He has the handle cold, like K-O-L-D on Instagram and on uh, YouTube, I believe. I watched like a lot of his videos and he was just traveling. And I think for me, the, the level of inspiration I got when we start when, when I just watched that and people of his camp, it was a very overwhelming amount of emotion because what it did is it allowed me to see that the world was bigger through somebody else. And so when we started, our logo actually is, it, it means aspire to inspire where the two swords are Roman numerals, but that, that's what our logo means. That's, and that's why it's always changed. And like, even though it's not necessarily relevant to the Ronin, it's just been a mark that we always use because the goal was to just blatantly inspire people. That was it. And the way that we did that when we started was just video, but the way the, how we were going to do that was just by making travel videos, like traveling and like literally just showing people that the world was physically bigger than the way that we saw it. And when the, to the college that I went to, we were in an echo chamber, right? The college I went to, the closest city was 30, 40 miles away. And even that city, during the day was dead so it's just like a bunch of buildings and it's just like there wasn't much to do if you didn't partake in the regular activities at that school so like i was just like i'm tired of seeing the world in the way that i see it knowing that there's more and then being helpless when someone just feels helpless so that was the original goal was just to just be a, a traveling videographer group that just made cool videos that was it all right so had that original vision that's perhaps changed over time was there a moment you think on that journey then that it felt like it all became real like you're running a, a business full-time and it felt like you made it i'm air quoting because perhaps the one never feels that way but was there a defining moment perhaps that journey you know honestly no like even now like business or not i still have trouble rationalizing some of the stuff that we do and even through our journey, like all the wow moments, I felt more empty than I did fulfilled. Like I don't like the mm -hmm. most fulfilling times that I can remember were just the smallest random moments that like are wouldn't be big to some or small to others. And I think every time I hit a milestone, feeling like leaving that feeling empty, you just kind of stop waiting, right? Especially because for me, like when I started, like I made the decision to take my face off of everything. So like you, like my face is on Instagram. It's not, it's not on anything. Cause I wanted to see what would happen if I pulled myself away from social media, I pulled my face out the limelight. Like what would that do to me as a person? And the more that I focused on me actually moving and not making it seem like I was moving, 
the more I realized how far I was from everything. And that created just like an inevitable fear of just like, oh my God, there's literally so much things I just don't know. And even now, there's so much things I still, I still don't know, even as far as we are. And like, I just, I don't think I honestly, like, I just don't think I've ever had that we made it moment. I think I've had like little moments, but it would be like, when I say like seconds, when I, when I would basically be like, this is crazy. <laughs> like, what am I doing? Those were, <laughs> I, I'd say those are the two. So. Yeah. Awesome. I think that's pretty true of entrepreneurs more generally as well of keeping that head in one space and that kind of action another that you don't forget sometimes to look back on how far you've come or to realize that this is the moment that you're currently in you're just thinking oh next challenge next opportunity how can I keep moving forward so I think that's a really interesting perspective as well I think your journey also has some twists and turns as well within it and one of the parts that I think is really interesting that perhaps you could speak to was your involvement in two car crashes dare I say throughout yeah. that experience and how did that kind of shape your outlook on life but also on business as well well so for the so the first car crash that is what got me started in a very weird way I literally remember just driving from my grandma's house to like my house and just watching someone run a stoplight I saw a stop sign and I wa- I remember watching myself let go of the wheel like I was prepared to die like I and I and like I think when I walked out of that car crash I remember thinking to myself like what is wrong with me Keep on keeping in mind, I come from being, I, so I was diagnosed with clinical depression at like a very young age. So I was normal to like the thoughts of suicide, but never to that extent to where I physically just did not care to save myself. And at that point, when I was in school, like I was already failing. Hope to God my mom doesn't see this. Rest in peace. She still didn't know, but I was failing at the time. And it was just a struggle for me to, I couldn't even wake up. Like it was bad. And after that moment, I told myself that I would much rather die chasing my dream than sit here and die dreaming of the what if. And that's what got me started. So I think that's what really had us catapult that first year when we started, when I went back to school. Um, I think that was my start of my junior year. And the second time, it was a big fear factor. Uh, I knew that at that point, like being a video company, at least in the area that we were at, was just not going to work. By that point, we worked with a lot of just decent companies in the area that a lot of people knew about, but just were fundamentally not making money, like definitely not to sustain. And I was just like, this is not a game that I want to play anymore. And when I, that second car crash was really bad because that was when I was uh, at a stoplight and I was, I just literally also remember just like chilling. I was just at a stoplight and I get hit, like I get hit from behind finding out the guy went 70 when I was at a complete stop. And I just remember, I thought it was a dream when everything slowed down. And when I walked out of that one too, with like also no scars, that's when I was like, okay, what, like, what is that? What am I trying to get out of this? Like, what was there to get out of this? And, but funny enough, that also was the time when we were, when I was afraid to go into digital marketing because there was just a no whole nother industry I knew nothing about. And I was so scared because I was so comfortable in my fear. And when we got, when I got hit that second time and I realized how, like, just how fragile life was, it was the same, it was the same um, sentiment, but it's what catapulted me into just trying. And I was like, if I could go from a kid that just had a camera, was just what, traveling around the, like the country, just shooting videos, not in like barely getting paid and still was happy doing it. What's stopping me from taking the jump and doing something more. So that, that second time, which God forbid is the last car accident I've ever been in. Thank the Lord that was the time that 
pushed me to push again. And from there, we've just skyrocketed. And I think I've, I just haven't been afraid of just pushing forward since then. That's pretty interesting. You kind of spoke before about not having those defining moments in the wins, the highlights, but then yeah. perhaps in the hard times, they are the defining moments and they are the ones okay. that make you look past the fears and see the bigger picture and change your internal process as well. And do you right. think part of that journey or any of those stages has led to a kind of purpose statement? I know a lot of people live by a, a singular purpose or singular impact they want to make on the world. Do you have that in your life or is that something that's ever changing? So, so, so that's interesting, right? So like when I started, it was all about following your passions. And like, as I failed to help people, I started redefining the passion, purpose and conviction line, right? So I started telling people like, follow your passions. I was that guy that was like, you're dumb for not following your passions, which is such an arrogant thing to say. Because to me, it was so simple. But of course, like, as I, you know, became a more empathy driven person, I started realizing that like, not everybody has the capacity to follow their passions and following your passion to an extent is a trap. So then that's when I started looking into purpose. And then that was right around the time when I got hit by the car and like, I was still driven by purpose, but I was just like, okay, purpose is not good enough clearly because I'm not moving. Like if I was still driven by purpose, why am I still stagnant? That's when, after I got hit, there was a sense of conviction. So what we say now is that you're grounded by purpose, but you're motivated by a conviction because purpose is not good enough for you to be driven into something. Conviction is what is that selfish underlying emotion that's within you that drives you forward and that conviction rather than purpose that's what we run ourselves by and a lot of the times you know for me it's it's maybe sometimes it's holistic and it's something that's good sometimes it's bad I have people on my team who are driven by revenge right and like the conviction of like oh like my parents said I was never going to amount to anything and I've gotten like fuck you like x y and z like that is the conviction of like I have to get up because I'm proving them right every time I'm not successful so there's a balance, right? Purpose is what grounds you, is what keeps you humble, but the conviction is selfish. It's something that it will drive you in the morning. And that's what we've kind of ended up on. And like, when I find out what's after conviction, I will let you know, but we are at that purpose right now, conviction, like that cross intersection. No, it's fascinating. It's, it's not something I'd put in, in, in those kind of words before, but just hearing you say that really applies to my own situation of thinking, about the difference between like motivation and discipline, for example, super mm-hmm. interesting. That kind of conviction and passion addition to that is, is fascinating. But if you were to pick one thing, then, you know, passion, empathy, conviction, all of those things is, is conviction. The one that people should be cultivating to be doing the thing they want to be doing or kind of living by that one single principle kind of thing. Yeah. Cause I mean, when you think about the purpose conversations, just like the passion conversation, like that's such a trap, right? Like, they can, like when you think about like, so I have a couple of people on my team, they're so worried about their conviction not being authentic, right? It's like, oh, I want to change the world. I'm like, no, you don't. And I'm just like, and even if you don't want to change the world, what's wrong with that? Because like, if you're going to sit mm-hmm. here paralyzed because you want to convince yourself you want to change the world and you're not moving, then you clearly don't want to change the world. And it's just like, for me, I think people should be focusing on their conviction. They should be focusing on something that's going to get them up in the morning and motivate themselves. Because when you get to where you think you want to be, you are going to change. Going back to your, your, like your question, Charlie, when was that pivot point? Like my purpose clearly has changed. And so, but my conviction has not. My conviction was always just this unearthed reality of literally nobody wants to talk about why we were in college. And the only time that people would want to talk about it is like when they were like blackout drunk. 
And I'm just like, how come you feel like you can only talk about that and really be authentic when you are blackout drunk? So for me, like that conviction is what drove me through it all. And I think it drove me into being less attached to what I am. And it be it made me more attached to what I have to become because in the gap between purpose and conviction, there's this thing in the center that's called confidence. And like confidence is a journey. It's not something that you can just obtain. So as you obtaining confidence to unleash that conviction, that is what you start seeing within people is that they, when they start contextualizing that confidence as a journey, their conviction becomes more tangible. But when you sit in this purpose type of realm, it's a trap because like, what's the purpose of us going to college? It's to get a job, but is that enough to get us up in the morning? No, it's not. So it's just like, that's where that conviction side is that it's that high level why. And then the confidence is the journey to chase that conviction. Mm, no, super powerful. And I wrote something down in my journal earlier on today, which Charlie and I have kind of spoken about before. I know that he sort of quote unquote does it better than me, but build a reputation with yourself first. That was the kind of line of, of kind of having that word that you stand by with yourself. And that's part of what actually builds confidence is when you say you're going to do something and then you do it, yep. you know? Um, so having that kind of confidence is that barrier between or that space between those is, is super interesting. But I want to ask you about the business for a second. And I know that you've mentioned a couple of times that pivot, those changes, that organic change, as well not just one change defined by another but actually mm -hmm. it's an ongoing thing so when you're managing a business when you're thinking about your own projects how do you know when to pivot how do you know when to make that change and kind of change the direction of that conviction well a lot of it is like so if your conviction is like you know the people tell you the dream big they tell you the dream big because you become less attached to what you are right and with with an ever-changing business landscape that's a direct reflection of the our human landscape perfect example is like the, if you would have thought that colleges going virtual was the vein of their existence, right? They in no world, shape or form would have <laughs> yeah. ever convinced themselves that they would have to go virtual unless guess what? A pandemic happened. So now because of that, it forced people to change. So when you are attached to what you want to be and it's something's fundamentally not working, pride and ego stop you from changing. And it, it goes to question your intentions. Are you trying to change the world? Or are you trying to profit off of it? And when you sit and look at, are you trying to change the world and are you trying to profit off of it? You do get the Adam Newman's from WeWork of the world, no, where no matter what they say, if the undertone of what you're trying to do is make money, you're going to prioritize money and profit over people. It doesn't matter what you say, how you brand yourself, your actions will speak louder than your words. So in, in terms of like pivoting, I think it, it goes to a couple of things. First thing is that you have to remember why you're in business. Are you in business to change the world? Are you in business to make money? If you're in it to make money, it is hard to pivot because then you're driven by pride and ego, right? But if you're in it to change the world, you, you eventually you just let go and you're like, this isn't working. It's not that the business is the problem. I am the problem. And then you have this internalized answer of like, now what do I have to do? It's not working. What do I do? And I think that's it in itself is a long and very painful journey because not a lot of people want to look at themselves, but that is what helps pivoting become easier is when you are driven by that existential conviction rather than just money. Mm. Yeah, it's like seeing yourself as the vehicle to change and towards that purpose right. of changing the world. And then once you do that, 
you let go of, or you certainly have a different relationship with your own pride, ego, profit motive, whatever that right. is, and however that influences your actions. But we've, we've mentioned you know, human centricity, empathy, human experience in terms of Gen Z at the very beginning, and maybe on a definitional level to guide the rest of the chat, kind of what does a more human-centered approach actually mean? Kind of just define that for us in terms of how you, how you see it. Yeah, so um, it, it goes back to that, that, that big question that, you know, we, we ask companies is like, what is the role you play in the human experience, right? Like, in, it, it's the same thing, like, not, not to like <laughs> jab at Adam Newman from WeWork, but like just the reality of like how people want to help people, but then there's a transaction tied to it at the end. And it's just like, you see that very heavily with these Facebook gurus, right? Facebook and YouTube gurus that like they hyper prioritize helping people, but really what they're trying to do is make money. And no matter what they say, they're not actually trying to help people because they're just trying to make money. Because if you're trying to help people, why are you going to charge someone their life savings for something that may or may not work? You can't guarantee the success. So are you really helping someone? Or are you perpetuating the idea that you are? So being more human centered is honestly just holding yourself accountable to the impact that you can and or can't create by realizing that your impact on society is what you do and do not do. And as a person and as a human who runs businesses and businesses are just systems that enable a enable or are a vehicle of a, of a transaction, being more human centered is looking deeper than the role of the role that businesses play with other people. And especially when you're not just looking at consumers, when you're looking at employees, I think being more three-dimensional with how we see business in our lives and even how in how we see the role of business especially as it pertains to this ideology that all these people want to be entrepreneurs same thing with wanting to be an influencer if you want to be an influencer you want to be an entrepreneur like let's 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 pull it back it's like you want to be an entrepreneur you want to control it yourself and then looking at the very like rugged statistics on its success it's like being more human centered is a lot of it is just accountability but accountability at scale so it's uh, and that 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 in itself is a wormhole. I'm not gonna hold you, but like, it, it is a it's a very deep wormhole because it goes deeper than just like how does a business function. It's like how do we operate as people? Like, like is it my fault that I don't know how to become an imagineer, or is it Disney's fault that you don't know how to become an imagineer? And then we get into the diversity conversation of just like how do you solve for diversity when representation is not as simple as picking and dropping. Like representation is everything to do with accessibility which then becomes a generational problem. So then there's all these things that come with being more human that like, that's the challenge that we face as a society is that we say we want to change, but do we really want to change when it costs a lot of money? And then you start realizing that people, because they do their job and they do their job very well, they're so attached to their P&Ls, but the P&L doesn't even reflect their income. Isn't that interesting? It's like, I'm a CMO of a multi-billion dollar company. I don't make billions of dollars but 10 to 20% loss of my last year's PL for the sake of the human existence, that's a lot to me, but I don't see that money. And so that's the challenge too, is like people are so conditioned to do their jobs. Like, I think we, I think it's gonna be a slow change. I think COVID helped, but being, just to answer your question, being more human is just holding ourselves more accountable to the role that businesses play in the human experience. Awesome, there's lots of good stuff there. I think there's quite a lot of different thoughts and different pathways to take this down. But right. taking it back to the kind of foundation of business, I think there's a lot of different elements of what makes a good business, but also a lot of elements of what makes any business. I think touted quite often is the fact that humans are the most important asset. And you think that is the case, taking this human-centered approach that all businesses should see people as the most important asset? Or do you think that 
systems, product, and even brand can be even more important instead? I think it's both. Like, I think there's a joint venture between the way a brand presents itself and the people that partake in the brand, whether it's their time or their money, right? Currency is subjective to whatever system that you're operating under. Currency to some people's time, some people's currency is money, but some people's currency is trade and relationships. It's all subjective. So I think like people are an asset. I'd also think that people need, businesses need to realize that people technically are products of your business, right? And then the way that you create just like mutual transactions is whether it's a consumer or service B2B, it's all subjective, but people are your assets, but they're also your products, especially if they're an employee. When you're looking at just holistically speaking, like there is such an avenue for brands to just be more three-dimensional with people and be like, okay, if I want a food influencer, right? Am I really going to go to a food influencer now? Because that's what it was maybe five years ago. But does that make any sense now? No, it doesn't. Because like how many food influencers do you follow? Like, honestly, like I don't follow any food influencers. All my food suggestions come from my friends or other influencers that are just more lifestyle centric, right? So it's just like brands, when they think about young people and they, they just think about people, period, as more three-dimensional beings with very dynamic lives, like they just all have these super crazy stories. I think, it, once again, it just gives us an avenue to think deeper than the traditionalized mechanisms of advertising. And it, it, what it does is that we can, companies can be more embedded. So it's not blaming the system of branding, like the brand stuff, that's all works, but it's, it's thinking about it from a more ecosystem and long-term, like true branding standpoint, where they're trying to face the game of time, not just conversion, because there's a happy balance, right? Like there has, like, I don't know if you guys saw this, but McDonald's, their next big meal is BTS. I'm very interested to see how it's about to go because BTS, as you know, has a global fan base. They're absolutely wild. And like, if they just, if they lock that down with McDonald's, rest in peace, McDonald's lines and TikTok for the next like month. But like just seeing that happen, that's one avenue with McDonald's that McDonald's, just like a lot of other fast food places, they've just been struggling past couple of years, like pre like their collaborations with other people. So, I mean, I think there is an avenue for, for brands to be more three-dimensional. I think it also just, it just depends on with, whether or not people are going to do it. Because I think another challenge that we see too is like, it's never that the ideas are not there. It's just who's going to actually be willing to listen. Yeah, definitely. I think that aspect of seeing people as more than just what you label them as or the demographic they sit in and understanding both their motives and their incentives, I think plays a really big part in both how you manage people internally, but how you appeal to customers and clients externally as well. Right. Within that then, would you say that humans, people, or any group of individuals are perhaps the biggest variable? And that's why it stands as a big problem to incentivize businesses to focus on them. Because when you think of systems, that's controllable. Oh, I can. There's, there's, there's a software for that. It makes it simple. Oh, there's a product. I can change the, the product. I can tinker it. I can make sure it's got a 99.9% .9 rate of manufacturing. Our brand, we can kind of influence our brand. We can develop a strategy for it. But when it comes to people, as much as you can have like a people strategy internally, it also is very individual and very personalized. So how can businesses with that frame of variability within the people they both employ, but also those they appeal to, how can they try and control or make sure that variable is in some way reflected on the asset sheet of the, the balance sheet, but also a way in which that it can be useful to a business and repeated over multiple times as well. So a lot of it, it goes back to that looking at people as more like just looking at people as more people 
and like it's like so okay this is something we learned right or something i learned very painfully is that it, it is if someone doesn't have empathy it is fundamentally impossible to teach someone empathy like you cannot teach somebody to care right but what you can do is that you can create an environment or a scenario that enables someone to care it's the same thing like if companies want to have better customer acquisition customer retention they want to have better employee acquisition and employee retention especially from a diversified standpoint it's not thinking so narrow at the problem. It's thinking around the problem, right? So like we're working on a project right now where there's a common misconception of what is a problem in lower socioeconomic areas, right? They believe that it's one thing, right? Which is, let me just give them access to resources. Like try teaching someone that's 14 that mentorship is valuable. This is that, that type of scenario. It's not the fact that mentorship isn't valuable. It's like hyper valuable, right? Super valuable. You get the relationship, you can possibly get a job, but try communicating that to somebody that doesn't see that as valuable. Is it your fault or is it their fault? And then you're right, it is their fault because they should have saw this valuable, but when you're trying to change the world, I don't think so, right? So it's actually your fault because you didn't think deep enough and care enough to actually think around that problem. So yes, like to answer your question, like it goes back to companies, like companies have to think around and create an environment for people to then feel like they can be what they want them to be. But if the companies are not going to think as deep and as and go to as much lengths to solve the problem, then all it is is transactional. In this generation and in the next generation specifically, because we have access to everything within our own means, i.e. Google, the worst thing a company can do is just throw money at something that's not going to work. But the crazy thing is, is that as young people are like, what is this going to do? older generation doesn't know that like they fundamentally don't know how to be more human outside of doing their jobs in that divide which is right here that is the problem so we're seeing people try to do it like and you're seeing this happen in america um, from a public private sector standpoint you're seeing like the governor of nevada is like proposing like this innovation district in vegas so it's going to allow tech companies to create their own governments and you see this with you know the, the like this decentralization of currency happening you see this with Capital One, that's a bank here in America. They're creating um, cafes, like, le like legit, just a Capital One cafe that's supposed to be a hybrid of coffee and banking. Just because they want to pull themselves out of a banking company, they want to be a tech company that now has an ecosystem attached to it. So it's like I said, it's, it's not that it's not there. I think Europe is significantly farther ahead, just notoriously with how they've even seen design and work culture period. But here in America, I think it's going to change when people start realizing they can make more money. But then that's where it's like on, on people like ourselves, the, the service space, the people who are actually doing the work, we have to know that insight and decide, are we going to use that to change the world? Are we going to weaponize it to make money? And that reality is like, that's the game we're going to be playing is it's going to be, our generation is going to di dictate how this world turns out, but it's going to be based off of, are we actually going to stay by what we say? We're going to change the world. We just want to make money. So I think it's it's a time game. We'll, we'll see what happens. But I, I'm very optimistic. It may be arrogance and I'll find out in 10 years. Yeah, it's about behavior as well, isn't it? Like at the end yeah. of the day, as things move, as markets move, as behaviors changed, everyone else will come along. And ultimately, I think we're in that period where early movers will take on more risk, but then they'll get right. more reward from that. Right. And as bigger players start to make higher risk plays, then everyone else will go, Asha, why are they doing that? Okay, that worked for them. Let me try something different that isn't looking through a narrow lens at a problem, but it is trying something completely different, putting cash behind it and then actually seeing that it pays off rather right. than seeing it as something that's completely written off 
depending on what risk they're taking on, which I think is the big thing around human focused initiatives is that the measurability isn't always there or the kind of ROI, the KPI for success, all of, all of that stuff, because some things are hard to measure in that people focus, it means that corporations are less likely to take different initiatives on or create their own initiatives. They're more likely to outsource, I think, too. So within that, how can we encourage businesses to be some of those early movers to not just think narrow in terms of problems? And it doesn't have to just be around the diversity conversation. I think thinking people, problems, the solutions are always narrow. So how can we help businesses to broaden their focus? I think we have to, I think it, it comes on our shoulders just as much as it comes to your shoulders, right? Like as a new generation of businesses, like we have to teach people how to be more human and show them like using empathy, right? To be able to understand why don't you want to do this, unearth that and embed our solution into the way that they see value in it. And I think if you can prove that you can make more money by being more human, I think it's a win-win. And a lot of the times, like that's all you're creating is you're creating more win-win scenarios. Nice. Yeah. And the win-win is definitely almost at the core of a human-centered approach, isn't it? Because it means that both the businesses are incentivized to do it, but those that are experiencing it are also getting a great experience on that end as well. I think perhaps probably taking it back to the Gen Z and taking it back to kind of graduates just out of university, like there's something really broken there that perhaps we're touching on with HowSite, but it's more of a broader systemic issue as well of the application processes that fresh university grads go through of it's like five, seven stages and they have to do multiple tests. They have to go and basically sell their soul and tell the company that they love them before they can actually even get an interview. And then they get minimal feedback at the end of that process as well. So that feels, I think a lot of people our age can relate to that, of that experience of really giving them, giving a company as much as you can, but getting very little in return, which I think is probably the pure essence of a non-human centered approach as well. And so within that, do you think there's a way to make application processes where people are the product into more human centered uh, in their approach as well. Well, I think a lot of the, a lot of these big brands, they profit off the idea that nobody knows how their stuff gets done. If I asked you who made the Nike Apple watch, could you tell me? No idea. Do you think, do you think Nike not. made it? Do you think Apple made it? Do you think the brands made it? In Apple terms of the manufacturing it? of the product? No. So, so an agency made that. So, yeah. so people are here, they're probably making decisions of, oh, I want to work with Nike because they did this cool thing with Apple. I want to work with Apple because they did this cool stuff, but that's not the case at all. Like our industries are so secretive with what we work is like a language, right? You have to get, you have to be in to know who did what. So a company called RGA, which is based out of New York, they're notorious for switching their business model every nine years. It's so funny that they're such a human centered company. I'm gonna just say this for the sake of saying this, but at, at one point in time, one of their biggest struggles was diversity. And it's just like, it's just so interesting because it's like, to your point, like it goes back to the idea of like, we are as, a, as businesses are so transactional, but we're so forward. Like if I'm an agency, I'm gonna worry about my customer Everyone else around me, it's like, if you know, you know, that is the biggest problem is like, to your point of like, how do we make application processes more human? Because I think we have to acknowledge that it is fundamentally impossible to get insight on something that you just fundamentally don't know anything about. It's the same idea of like, if like people, like the most frustrating argument for me is like when people try to tell me that our generation having Google makes us more equipped to navigate the world. This is the most falsified thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Because imagine having something like Google who curates everything that you search. Imagine having something like Google and you don't know what to Google. It's literally like our world. 
Because if you don't know what an agency is, if you don't know how the world works, if you don't know certain questions to ask, it's not going to give you what you need. It's going to give you what you're looking for. And what you're looking for is the problem. And it's just like when people weaponize that, right? Because that's how they make money. That in itself is where all these problems come out. Because it's, it's not even our fault, as a, all our fault as a consumer. It's the organizations that perpetuate these cycles. So it always goes back to the companies. It always goes back to these industries and these brands of like solving for diversity. And it's not just diversity through grace. It's diversity just of like different people, period. It's like, it's, it's them creating programming to your point, different systems and, and processes are just avenues of touch points that enable a young person to be better prepared to grow up not just be a consumer. I think we've hyper-focused so much on being a consumer that then, but also our ideas of innovation, they come and go so few and far between. Like there's maybe like, maybe like what, very few innovative companies that really come out here, like truly innovative companies. Do you have to work for an innovative company to drive innovation? Or are you just innovative and you just gave up on your on, on yourself because you just don't know how to get to where you want to go? To your point, because you have to lie to yourself and lie to these companies about how much you want to work for these companies, get very minimal feedback, and then just becomes a cynical cycle where the world is failing you because they believe that you are the problem when you're not. If you don't know what you don't know, whose fault is that? Is that your fault? And it's just like when we look back in history and we look back how capitalism is a very new financial system that we use, I do think that the world, there's an avenue for us to change. To your point, there just has to be the new people that get there. I think uh, crypto is a perfect example of like how UBI can actually become a thing because it doesn't, it doesn't come out of anyone else's pockets except blockchain. And it's just like there's certain things where I'm just like there's these certain avenues where the world can become this utopia or at least an idea of a utopia. But it's always going to be based off the people that weaponize it. Right. Because even with diversity, like I can tell you just from knowing certain people and like certain fortune companies, like the diversity conversation has been going on for like the past like 30, 40 years, minimum, like true. But what you'll find is that it's always the decision makers that decide whether or not it's valuable to them based off, of course, like you said, like their PL. So a lot of it is like, it, it is trying to maneuver, but then it is also having to have companies like realize like if you want to have more innovative employees, not just diverse employees, you can't just wait until they graduate college and then have a career page and say the career page is enough, you got it. It's like, you have to do more. Like, what about all this creative talent that's not endemic to your area? Like, if I don't, because if I came from Virginia, you really think I'm going to believe I can work for Nike? I don't even know where Nike is. The closest thing to Nike is Nike retail. You know what I mean? So it's just like, there's all these misconceptions on like how people navigate the world. I don't think it has anything to do with young people. It has everything to do with, to your point, to these processes, these systems and programming. And then also this hyper-reliance on college with Google having their certification program. Like, I think that's such a big step into you don't need college. And I think there has to be a point to when we realize that pushing someone down that system and believing that they're going to find it, like find their way when I'm pretty sure what 53% of people that come out of undergrad are, under, are not employed. It's like, is this financial system actually working? Or are we just telling ourselves that because it's so normalized within our society? So I don't know. Like, I do think it, it comes from businesses. I believe fully that the private sector has more to do than the public sector. I just don't believe that government is going to solve the problems. We see that here in the States. You guys see that. It's like a meme at this point. But then also I do know just inside out, I can tell you that the like our government in the US, they are trying to figure out how to compete with big tech. They don't know how. Big tech also knows that they like they need the government because and so it's just like there's you're gonna see a lot of public private joint ventures come out. But even in that, when you look at the, the federal space, you should look into like just Google for the for the laughs. Just how many ungodly compliance factors have to come in when making a simple decision. 
but a lot of the compliance is a result of lack of trust. And it's just like all these new compliance and all these new, like these policies come out when people weaponize or take advantage of other people. So like, there's all this, like this, this crazy stuff, because even though the answer should be as simple as we think it is, it's not because we had our generations before us who just fucked it up for the rest of us. Yeah. I think that's definitely very true. And within that then, would you, or would it be fair to summarize as people are only as good as the inputs they put into the processes and the tools they have around them. So even if you have Google at your fingertips, you only know, or can only Google what you know. So by having the tools and the knowledge to, as a starting point, that's probably the missing piece here. But then it comes back and begs the question of where do you get that information from? If the college system is broken, which I do believe it is as well, how can that education come from a third party? Is it something you have to upskill yourself in and that's just a, a right of path? Or is it something that bigger brands, bigger corporates can come and work on and almost create, dare I say, an employer brand that goes beyond just, hey, look, get a job with us. It's also, hey, look, let me help you, even though you're not working for us. And then creating that education space around it as well. I also think that it's probably a pretty interesting topic that these big tech companies don't really have a problem with employer brand. Like they get loads of applicants. They probably get a thousand to, to one ratio. Like they get huge numbers of applicants coming through all the time. And perhaps the problem there lies with the bigger or the smaller companies that has to compete for top candidates with the big tech companies. Like how can they attract those that want to go to big tech companies to get that on their CV or to have that illustrious career that they think they can have with them? And how can they appeal to that same generation of people as a viable alternative through which they can develop their career as well? So that's why it's funny, right? Because this goes back it comes back full circle into what we started talking about, which is this um, conviction versus purpose conversation, right? Like when you ask someone like, why are you working for a big tech company? It's just this ideology of money, right? It's just like, oh, money's gonna solve X, Y, and Z. But then literally I have a lot of friends who burn out after two years of working at the big four and they're like, okay, I'm out. Like this shit is ass, fuck this, like I'm dying. Like they don't care about us as people, we're just a number, but you make the money. And it's just like, it's this idea of like, what goes back to the same question. Like what is the role of business in the human experience? And it's just like, we, we are so consumed with marketing and advertising. Everything is marketable, right? College, this look at this, this fancy job and this high salary, like everything is marketable. I think we have to really, at some point, take a step back and look at the impact of our marketing efforts. We imagine Googling what you only know, but then you Google what you don't know. We also really have to realize that people weaponize SEO. SEO is a marketing tactic. So of course, like when you find an article about how to build a business, you find the person that wrote it. Of course, guess who wrote it? person that's going to sell you how to build a business. So it's just like, we have to also internally, like it, 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 I think it's going to have to come from people like yourselves and people like us just being successful at scale, but just this, this new wave of business that people who prioritize helping people and making money. I think it has to be a movement that has to just be created by people who are just good at doing business. And like, I think if you can do stuff like that, like, which is creating impact at scale, very similar to how Elon Musk did with the entire automobile industry. I think we have to focus on playing a bigger game because if, if we can't focus on the smaller things, if we're not prepared to change it from the top down, because if we normalize a practice from enterprise and federal space and down, we can actually see it, a chance at something being different. But if we hyper-focus on something small, then I think we're gonna to get to exactly to what we want. But when you wanna do something small, it doesn't change the impact or create the impact that you want it to. So it's a lot of like people, people problems, but I think it's also like a scalability problem too. Like it, it just comes down to us 
like I do believe that we, it does not, whether you're in a business or whether you're trying to figure out if you want to start a business or whether you want to actually be uh, an employee at one of these big tech companies, I think you have to internally search like, why am I doing this? And I think it's just as much as it internally for us, like, like why are we doing this? As it is for these companies, like the companies, they perpetuate that. It's like, you're, you want good talent so bad, but look at all the things that the way that you market yourself, look at the way that you're even attracting good people. The reason why people have all these crazy like requirements right? It's not because they don't want to find and invest into new people. It's that they've just been taken advantage of because we take advantage of each other. Like people who are looking for a job are desperate. People who have businesses, they're desperate looking for talent to scale their operations. It's not a, there's not one person here that's at fault, but to answer your question, like, I don't even know like how to directly solve it. I think it's going to be something that we can tackle over time. I think we can do our best, work with each other and make our businesses more human and then work with other companies that want to make their business more human and then just prove it. Because all the companies that I've seen that have been moving from a more human center standpoint, and a lot of the human center standpoint is not always direct. So a lot of indirect stuff that you just don't see that's very human centered. You start seeing how companies really start scaling, but I just think we just got to prove it. It's one of those things. Yeah, I think the relationship with hierarchy as young people as well is completely shattered. And I think we haven't even seen the ramifications of that. I think social technology has been a big factor in creating that. So right. the kind of classic thing to illustrate that is the standard social media following of somebody who's 16 years old versus somebody who's 40 years within industry, playing their own career pathways, who might have influence over a certain small niche of people, but actually the impact that the former person can have is exponentially greater than the second person. And I think that's really uncomfortable, actually whether that's on a company level for incumbents within industries on an individual level, because actually it plays to insecurities on a personal level of, I think people don't know how to deal with that, that people who are 12, 16, 10, 20, 25 have an unbelievably bigger understanding of the world, but also their own influence, their own kind of domino effects that they create as individuals by themselves or with their own companies is greater than what they've built over the last 20, 30, 50 years themselves. And it's because of that, the relationship to hierarchies as young people is completely shifted in the sense of, I feel like you earn, you know, job respect in a completely different way because things like leadership, which people will put on their applications that, you know, I want you to demonstrate leadership in this role. I want you to, um, being able to, to contribute to a team, all, all of these things, these things that are not associated with titles anymore. They're not associated with your place in the hierarchy. You either have them or you don't. And it's that kind of classic thing of the kind of first dominoes are falling, but I think there's so many bigger dominoes to fall in the next 10, 20, 50 years to come that, yeah, it's just going to have that kind of exponential type of change. Like the number of conversations that I've had that, have been with leaders that are even though I've just said it there, like leaders within organizations, they're not necessarily leaders by personality, but they're leaders because of their job title. And actually that kind of standard respect or standard power that you have because of your position within an organization or the amount of budget that you hold, that's going to shift as all of these social changes and trends start to move in the opposite direction, if that makes sense. So I think the relationship to hierarchy is fascinating as well. But I think one of the things that we also have to look into that's also interesting, it goes back to what uh, we were touching on earlier is like, 
you have the dichotomy with right a young person who thinks that they've built something, which is true, but then the older person with experience that translates it in a different way, right? So older people look at the social media stuff, it's impactful, but it's also short-term, and we all know that. But then what the problem is, is that when young people come in thinking that they know the world, but they don't, it becomes very apparent to an older person that asks you very simple questions, and you can do this with a lot of content creators, ask them what an MSA is, ask them what an SOW is, ask them what diversity supplier compliances is, ask them like all these big things that they say they want to do, but they know nothing about. And what it creates is like young people, to your point, because there's insecurities on both sides, right? Older people insecure that the young person built something, young person insecure because they don't want the old person to think they're incompetent. Like it's just insecurities across the board. But the problem is just what, what's in the middle is this fundamental gap of like lack of empathy for each other and then just miscommunication. And it's miscommunication that you can contribute that to brand, it could be whatever, but it's like old people know the answer, but will not go the lengths to communicate it in the way that a young person will find that to, to be valuable. And then the young person doesn't want to admit to an old person that I know I don't know what I'm doing. I know I've built something though, but you will never see me past just being a kid. And you just will always have these divides of where like the problem is not that we don't know the answer. The problem is that we refuse to communicate it with each other. And when you're looking at, to your point, like leadership, that is a lot of times it's not based off personality or a lot of times even accomplishments, it's just based off a title. And we can attribute it sometimes to race, right? I mean, a lot of times actually to race. I'm not going to yeah, put sure. it in the I think absolute because I just, I don't know or have the statistics. But when you talk to some people, they, they do feel like it, a lot of their lack of promotions are or are not racially motivated. Then you're looking at, okay, what's the problem here? Is that, is it really because like we don't have the answers to these problems or is it just because we don't want to talk it out? And then it's even worse when you look at the way that old people see Gen Z. And we know that what we see through Twitter, i.e. cancel culture, Twitter, that that doesn't represent all of Gen Z, but when it makes it onto the news through branding, an old person is gonna be like, oh my God, these kids are dumb, right? But then it's just like, unfortunately, because there's people in this world who don't fight those kids and because social media in itself is a big echo chamber and you perpetuate that with, with like TV media, we are being painted at all these different things that are not true, that the people who are actually trying to change the world are being underlooked by the social media side of the way that people weaponize or really demonize young people, to be very honest with you. And it's like, I, to be honest with you, I don't even know how to fight that either because it's like, I can't stop media from doing its job. I can't stop people from voicing their opinion because their opinion and their experiences are valid. But the only thing that we can do is people who maybe just think differently is just move differently. And just hope that if we project ourselves to the world that maybe somebody will listen and just allow ourselves to be the best version of ourselves and just see what happens. Cause I, it's something that I've been toying with all the time. Like, bro, like there's people in our, in our industry here in the States that built their entire business. And they're, unfortunately they are gender Z's. They built their entire business off of lying and telling people that they know what they're doing, but they don't. There's all these people that like perpetuate this idea that they know how to market to Gen Z, but they couldn't even tell you the difference between Gen Z culture and youth culture. And they're in what's, what's what the terrible thing is like, it's not even the fact that I don't know what they're doing. The problem is that they're making it harder for people to trust young people because of their innate sense to want to make money. And they, in their one experience are ruining it for the rest of us. And it's just like that lack of accountability, that lack of self-awareness, I think the problem becomes bigger. Then I think it's, it's, it's also, it's unfortunate because it's also perpetuated because of social media we all use the space as a way to create a highlight reel or a version of ourselves that we aspire to be. Older people who know how this stuff works know that we are doing that and think it's laughable, but we will never 
because also I'm not going to hold you. It's hard to find an older person that wants to talk about it too. It, it's not like we both are not aware. I think just people just don't want to communicate. Yeah, we keep talking about change, but like change comes collectively. It's not just you or it's not just me. So, I mean, like I said, like I've had the, the very few people in the world that respond, but after my team has sent 10,000 emails, maybe in the past, maybe year and a half, and maybe only 300 people respond, like that's sad, right? When you talk about change and then when it goes back to what we're talking about, when you're talking about the website stuff, like people will only respond if they have a motivation to respond to us because we abide by their job title. But if you ask to talk to them as a person, it's unfortunate that people weaponize reach out and relationships to make money that they are already desensitized to making friends because they feel like your undertone is going to be a sale. So it's a whole slew of societal issues that I think we as Gen Z are dealing with as we are also dealing with our own demons. Like the Gen Z space is crazy toxic, right? You see all these influencers coming out the gate, canceling each other. You see the stuff that happened with like David Dobrik with the stuff that's happened with him and like this all like super fucked up stuff but it's crazy because like the stuff that he did was so fucked up is crazy like he 100% had this crazy power dynamic that he should have controlled but then it's also just interesting that we also forget that five to ten years ago everything that people are weaponizing him for was stuff that we consumed every single day and nobody had a problem with it so it's like there's all these double standards that to me is just it's fascinating um because it's like we are, it's like we've lost our, we've lost an ability to even hold ourselves accountable to being human, right? It's like if the whole part of the human experience is to be able to grow, and like, but then at the same time, part of growth is acknowledging where you come from and its normalities. But then we take that away from people. It's just like how are we actually allowing ourselves to grow? And then when you weaponize that, like I think one of the most frustrating things, and I'll shut up. The most one of the most frustrating things I saw happen last year during the pandemic and explicitly during the George Floyd stuff is I saw a lot of people weaponize the death of George Floyd as a way to build their platform. That was wild because it's like, how can you say you're holding these brands accountable, but you are knowingly posting on Instagram, knowing it's going to get a bunch of shares and you're maybe not directly profiting off of it, but you indirectly profit off of it. How is that not any worse than a company that makes money off of it? when you're doing it through social capital. So there's all these discrepancies I think we see, whether you're young or old, I don't wanna ever put ill intention into people's heads, but like, it's just, I watch it happen. And I, and I just think the way our world is set up is more fucked than the people who operate in it. And to your point, Charlie, I do think it's the systems. I think people just don't know because when you think of making it in this world, you think money, is that really our fault? Or is that the way that the world operates? I mean, I would paint it on the world, not us. But just living in that world and having to survive and doing all these different things, I do attribute it to the society. I don't, I don't think it's going to be as simple, but I do think we can change it. Or we can try at least. Yeah, no, definitely. There's so much within that. And I think the one bit I want to pick up on, because we've spoken about it a few times on the podcast and just around our own socials as well, is the point around branding, personal branding, taking yourself and your face out of your own marketing and the kind of influencer culture kind of moving away from that hypocrisy, trying to put yourself out there, but also have that vulnerability to say and show that you don't have all the answers and actually you never will. And is your approach almost not anti-personal brand? Well, yeah, maybe it is. Is it anti-personal branding in the sense of trying to take yourself away, let your actions do the talking, let your business be the focal point rather than you personally? 
So I think, oh, so, that, so that's, that's a deep question in itself, right? I think, so for me, I'll, before we live in a capitalism, capitalistic society, we have to remember that influence at the end of the day is power over people, mm. right? And some people attribute it to money, but I know a lot of people who have a lot of money are the most miserable because they buy their friends versus the other people who, I know mm. some of the happiest people that make no money, but they're just so happy, it's insane. Like their just radiation is like wild. So when we're looking at influence, I think we have to dissect that influence in its regards and relationship to money is subjective, but it's also not absolute. If you wanna have influence at the end of the day, you wanna have influence over people. And they, what it does, it creates this dichotomy within the influencer cultures, or do you wanna be an influencer or do you wanna be influential? So to answer your question, like for us as a company, I focus on being influential because if I have power over people, whether it's direct or indirect, I would much rather have, a, have influence over someone who has influence over 10,000 people than have influence of 10,000 people myself. Because if I wanna change the world, this, it, once again, it has nothing to do with me. There's 7 billion people on this world. It is impossible for me to have 7 billion followers across period, like the world. That's why people who wanna be influencers, you have a better chance of being influential than being an influencer. Because when you take the vanity side of it, it comes down to, do you know how to help somebody? Can you solve their problems? And what does that translate to in business? And for my company specifically, my business has always aspired, keep in mind, I'm still working on it. It's not perfect by any, by any stretch of the imagination, but my company has always aspired to be a vehicle for my team to know what they want and solve the problems that they want. It was never an avenue for me to steer somebody in a direction that I thought they should go because the second I do that, that in itself is manipulative because I'm selling them on this higher level vision that I think they should go rather than just waiting and waiting for them to get to it. And they use things, the resources and the environments that I create for them to get what they want. So yes, to an extent, it is, it is anti-personal branding for myself maybe, because I'm the founder. It is hyper-focused on the business, but the product of this business is them. All the clients, all the big clients that we've ever generated, I made it a point to make sure that I closed it, but they brought it. Because I'm not going to motivate them into solving problems that they don't care about because their human experience is different than my human experience, even though this is my business. Even though that's a very new practice that not a lot of people know how to do, I just would trust that my team doing the things that they care about will give them a higher ROI of smiles and happiness and fulfillment than me trying to believe and basically manipulate them into doing what I think we should do. So yes, to answer your question, it is anti-branding for me as Alex, but not for the business and not for the team. I mean, they've, they've through their networks and just what they're doing, they built great brands for themselves, but a lot of times it has nothing to do with numbers. It's, it has to do with the value of the people within those numbers. Like who's your audience? Like if, imagine this, right? Like, is it really important to have 10,000 people viewing your story? Or what if you had like all the CEOs from all fortune 500 companies view your story, which one's more powerful, right? And I think it, it, for us, we, we as a generation have to redefine what it means to be influential because it has nothing to do with numbers on the, on the, on the platform that could or could not be gone tomorrow. Yeah. And that's a pretty huge one. That is, it's not about it's quality of a quantity, isn't it? The key element there, but it's thinking about individual relationships and how actually influence is really about the people and the relationships you have, not just who sees your story or how many followers you have on a certain social media account. So I think that's a really powerful kind of conclusion, shall we say to, right that main area of like Gen Z and how they're fitting into the workplace, fitting into the environment around them, but just kind of bringing it all together, Alex, I'm sure you will find many ways to do so. 
what do you think is perhaps the future of human-centered experiences and how does it look like to you is there going to be one direction that it's inevitable or is there multiple different pathways we could end up falling into well i want us to get to a point as a society where it's a couple things so for my business one of the things a couple terms we're trying to figure out and employ one of them is living for a living another another one is living while working and like for us, like when we're watching these companies be more integrated with the way that they even look at themselves as a brand, I think the way to, to for us to humanize everything is just to literally look at like, and just answer like, what is that future? Is it really just a transaction or like, can we label brand experience as just having like, okay, now this is going to be scary, but bear with me here. But like, imagine if Facebook had its own currency, but they also it controlled its own community. But if Facebook has so much money and it had its own currency, could we pull people out of poverty fundamentally because it doesn't come from the government, it comes from something else, right? And with Facebook having so much fucking money being an advertising platform, like could they enable small businesses to thrive because they could eat up 80% of what landlords would maybe control in New York. Facebook can have its own community and maybe charge 20% of what it would actually cost because they could eat up it, they could eat it up. So there's all these different things where like, I think the future of our society is, is subjectively bright because there's opportunity I think the thing that I'm afraid of the most is just the people who make these decisions. And to your point, the insecurities of them as a person, how does that flood into the decisions that they make? I think I'm more scared of that than the opportunity. Now I am optimistic. I think knowing that there's people like you guys, there's a couple other people that I've met just like who have the same mindset as I do. I think we will find our cake and eat it too. But I do think it's just, we as the people who understand this have to also remind ourselves that we can't do this alone. Like, I don't at any point think I can do this alone. I think that we just have to come collectively together and then just like at some point, like directly or indirectly help each other to get to where we want to go because I will impact families and generations and bloodlines just like just as much as you guys will too. And if we're trying to change the world, then I think we just have to hold ourselves to that standard of, hey, like if I want to change the world and go after global impact, don't just relegate yourself to business impact. And the, but the way that you get to global impact is to your point is focusing on humans because the person that's the decision maker is still a person at the end of the day. But are you willing to go down the lengths, i.e. following your conviction to bring it all back together to, to rise up to what you know you have to be, but you're just afraid to admit it because the journey and the, and the label and X, Y, and Z, it just seems scary and it seems hard. So I, you know, just wrap it all up. I think there's, a, there's an opportunity I, and I don't think I can do this by myself. I think more people um, have to be enabled to go down this journey and i think it's our responsibility as people who are older to set and create the environment that will allow people to actually succeed awesome yeah i think that's a really good way of of summarizing i think perhaps in my head the biggest takeaway is not you don't sell through your business products or services you provide experiences for people and thinking about that in a new light and thinking about it in a way in which you can not necessarily optimize but make the experiences as fulfilling and as meaningful to people that you operate with both internally but also sell to externally i think is the really big takeaway for myself so yeah thank you alex really appreciate the conversation today it's been a great one and you can of course find alex on the ronin and you can find him on linkedin as well awesome thank you guys that's it for today from the house hack podcast the best place to find us is linkedin at house hack events the company page and personally on linkedin at ryan mcgee and real charlie rogers We really appreciate your listening support. Leave us a review if you enjoyed our episode and we'll see you the next one.